0: Once again, we welcome you to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Happy that you could join us and happy to welcome Noah Gould back to the show. Noah, of course, is a Young Voices contributor, but he wears a few other hats besides. And Noah, if you take just a moment uh, for those meeting you for the first time, tell us just a bit about yourself.
1: Yeah, well, thanks for having me back, Brian. Always a pleasure to, to talk with you. I work at the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty, and I manage a few programs uh, for them. And I also get the chance to write on a variety of topics, economics, culture. I love connecting different ideas.
0: Well, I'm looking at an article that you have written for Fusionaier.org. And by the way, I, I have to I have to say I'm really excited to see that AIER um, has, you know, another publication that, that you're contributing to here. Effective altruism's reign should end with Sam Bankman Fried's. I, I've heard of Sam Bankman-Fried, although I've heard of him as SBF, right? That's kind of, as you, you point out, exactly. that's that's reserved for the saints among the progressives. But um, for those who aren't aware, he started a cryptocurrency, which then turned out to be a huge bust. Maybe you, Could you catch us up? What happened with him? Because he did end up facing criminal charges, and, and I'm guessing he's still in some pretty hot water.
1: Yeah, so he ran a uh, cryptocurrency exchange FTX. So the idea was um, you could have a wallet held by FTX where all your cryptocurrency was there. Um, kind of acted like a bank of sorts for cryptocurrency. So he was one of the largest players in that space that he started. But he also had an investment firm that was quasi-linked to FTX, Alameda Research, and that's where really really got in hot water because the money that was spent there used customer funds to invest in incredibly risky operations, as well as just spend money on, you know, houses and yachts and expensive, all sorts of expensive things for him and his um, employees. So the accounting is all messed up and he ended up in with several counts of fraud that he was convicted
2: on.
0: Wow, I remember too, though hearing almost a Robin Hood-like uh, portrayal of him as, well. but look at the good that he's done. And there were numerous people who would point to, oh, he's he's done this uh, this kind of altruistic work here and there, and uh, that was that was more or less how I was first introduced to him. And then some of the more shadowy accusations came out, and was like, oh, maybe that's not uh, not all it's cracked up to be. But I have to admit, until your article, I had never heard of effective altruism, or the the movement of effective altruism. Talk to me a little bit about the history of that.
1: Yeah, so this is exactly why I wrote this article, because a lot of people had heard of Sam Bankman Fried, but they hadn't heard of effective altruism. And a lot of uh, students of effective altruism right now are talking about um, how, you know, maybe he was a bad guy, but we really should revive effective altruism and continue that as a path forward. So effective altruism is, um, you can think about it as utilitarianism applied to philanthropy. So utilitarian philosophy basically teaches that um, the highest good is just the maximizing pleasure for the most people and limiting pain. So it's really just uh, this calculus is what should determine what is ethical or what is not ethical. So it's not as much about you know individual actions, virtue, that kind of thing. It's really about this. Uh, meta-analysis of um, pleasure and pain and measuring these things. So uh, the followers of effective altruism believed that what you should do is um, give to causes that uh, will uh, kind of do the most good for the most people. So it's really beyond just this idea of we should give to things that help people instead of hurt people. I think we can all kind of agree about that. But it really is this is the only sole good is just giving away money. So people knew him Hmm. because he talked all over the place about that uh, giving philosophy
0: i love the example that you use too of, of what um this effective altruism might look like in practice with a, a situation where there's a house on fire and you can either rescue the child who's in the house or the painting by picasso that's in the house and the higher use would be well you rescue the painting because you could sell it and then use that money to help more people which exactly. makes sense but in yeah. a very twisted way This is, yeah, a
1: real example given by a philosopher, Will McCaskill, who's kind of the patron saint of this movement. He says, yeah, if you're in a building, save the Picasso because you can sell that Picasso and save even more kids. So, I mean, this is kind of the dreams that it brings us to. We can all kind of, our gut reaction, I I think, for uh, almost everyone will be, wow, that is just uh, abhorrent to to leave the kid in the burning building and, and save the Picasso. But... That's what this leads to if you take it to ex- its extremes.
0: Wow. And it was interesting, too, to learn that his mother, that uh, SBF's mother, is a law professor at Stanford and actually kind of defends that utilitarian approach. In fact, even to the point of saying that, well, really, you know, you shouldn't be held responsible for your actions because there are forces beyond your control at, at work here. How does that work?
1: Yes, yeah, so this is really
0: interesting because...
1: You know, his mom is a, a decently well-known consequentialist philosopher. So, you know, the only thing that matters is the outcomes of actions. And you might think, oh, this is just an ivory tower thing. It really doesn't matter. This is the things we tend to hear and they seem unhinged and we just ignore them, right? The theory, the, the higher philosophy. But this is an example of why I really think we can't ignore um, the theory.
0: Yeah, I, I, I mean, in there you point out, you know, if you follow that to its logical conclusion, then then pretty much you know the guy who comes and sticks me up at knife point because he needs mo- his, needs surgery or needs money for his mother's surgery, well you know technically he's doing a good thing. Oh, but he's robbing me in the process. Yeah, but it's for a good reason. I mean, it seems like that could be that could be twisted in in a w- lot of ways that are advantageous to whomever is doing the taking and the distributing, but not so much to the person from whom they've taken.
1: Exactly. Yes. So the person who's getting the money and distributing it, they really are, or they become in this philosophy, kind of the standard, the person who gets to call the shots. And that's what we saw with Sam Bankman-Fried.
0: So what is what is his future looking like? I mean, I'm not trying to suggest that, boy, well, if you have enough money, you can get all the justice you can afford. But he seems pretty well positioned that uh, he would have he would probably have as many advantages as a person could have, you know, facing these fraud charges. Is, is he likely to, you know, get a slap on the wrist if, if that
1: I actually think that he will face justice for this. Um, oh. He has significant means, but a lot of that was, of course, in cryptocurrency, which is now uh, frozen, and uh, he doesn't seem to have access to a lot of his accounts. Um, it wasn't really his own money he was spending in the end. Uh, most of the value and um, the kind of billionaire status that he had was in the value of FTX, which has collapsed. Um, so I, can, I see that... The feds will probably try to claw back some of the money that his parents received, so it will even affect them. And I think he will be facing a jail time. He will likely appeal um, what he um, where he was convicted. Uh, but I, I don't see it going any other way. It seems like all of his employees have come out and said he was he was pushing us to commit fraud and we thought maybe we could move fast and break things and still make money, but that's what was happening at the end
0: of the day. So I often hear people say, "Look, intentions don't matter as much as you know actual results." How does that work in a situation like this? Because it sounds like the effective altruism is more or less results-oriented, but but still, it, it doesn't quite pass the sniff test. Exactly. Yeah. So.
1: They would say that really what matters is the outcomes. And as far as Sam Bakeman Fried, I don't think we'll ever know whether he had good intentions, whether he really, in, in his heart of hearts, held to this idea of effective altruism, or whether he was just using it as a tool uh, to gain power and clout. But I think the underlying philosophy does require that we just look at outcomes. And that becomes flawed for a lot of reasons. Um, one is, you know, we in our compassion, in our philanthropy, you know, philanthropy, the word comes from love of man, which we often don't think of, and we think about just all the, ch- the giving that flies around, but that's that's the core of it. We really need to have some sort of relationship. Uh, and that does matter what intentions we have towards that person, whether we actually care for that person. Uh, I think if, you, if you're walking up to someone on the street and trying to help them, um, you really uh, need to care for them and they will know whether you don't. And so I think that matters at the end.
0: So you make a very good distinction between authentic altruism and effective altruism. And you talk about some of the virtues that are at stake, treating people with compassion, um, philanthropy, how it applies to everybody, and uh, how ethics doesn't instrumentalize business as a necessary evil. What's the takeaway? What's the big lesson we can learn from Sam Bankman and and his actions?
1: So character matters, and we each need to uh, seek to be virtuous people, to have uh, patterns and habits that lead towards virtue and loving others and caring for them. And as we end you know, the year, we're thinking about giving. I think we can focus on how can I become uh, the type of person who then gives out of who I am and out of what I care about? And that really you can't substitute um, just effective, zero-sum efficiency for that. That's You should try to help people genuinely uh, and, and try to help them in ways that will be effective, but that's not the only thing. It also matters to who you are.
0: Again, we are talking with Noah Gould. He is a Young Voices contributor, as well as the alumni and student programs manager at the Acton Institute. Where can people follow you on social media?
1: So you can find a lot of my work on actin.org. Um, a lot of my writing is there as well as uh, LinkedIn and not on the Twitter game yet, uh, but uh, I would love to, to connect
3: with people there.
0: back to moving forward with Young Voices. Happy to welcome Peter Clark back to the program. He is a Young Voices contributor and he wears some other hats as well. And Peter, maybe take a moment and tell us a little bit about what you do.
2: Well, I'm a Young Voices contributor, but I like to think of myself more in the vein of being kind of like a consumer choice Clark Kent you know like i i work a corporate job by day i'm doing research and writing articles by night so a bit of a alter ego so to speak
0: well and i'm i'm loving the piece that i'm reading of yours in uh, aier.org the american institute for economic research wonderful wonderful organization and this one grabbed my attention because uh, I don't play video games myself but I have kids who love to play the video games and uh, your articles about how epic games is suing Google Play over what they say are anti-competitive uh, practices uh, first of all for those who aren't familiar with epic games I'll bet you there's another name they would recognize if, if you if you said it
2: well they are the publisher I'm, I'm sorry the developer and publisher of fortnite which is which is a very famous game. I I'm not much of a gamer myself, but I'm pretty sure they are also responsible for like the Unreal games, like the Unreal Tournament and all that. So maybe that might ring a bells for some other folks, but so what
0: prompted them to to go after Google Play? I mean, Google Play, now I would think that's uh, that's a pretty big foe both in and out of the courtroom. They've got a lot of resources. Um, what uh, what got Epic Games uh, to the point where they said we've got to take this to court?
2: Well, you know, it's interesting because a couple of years ago, they actually sued Apple for, you know, kind of similar conduct in many regards in terms of their app store, but they ended up losing. But unfortunately, I just read an article, I believe from The Verge last night that unfortunately Google lost their um, antitrust suit against, uh, well, actually more like Epic won their antitrust suit against Google. Um, I sent Two practices that they were concerned about. One was um, Google, or I should more accurately say Google, the Google Play app um, was trying to entice um, publishers to bring their games to the platform via receiving um, <clears throat> I guess what they refer to as, like, marketing credits, you know, which would be, you know, X amount of dollars of free marketing and advertisements through the platform for their games. And, you know, and obviously they were trying to pull in the big names like, you know, Activision Blizzard, you know, Epic Games, you know, Epic Games, just to bring a few, because obviously those are, you know, like the publishers of big games, like, you know, like the World of Warcraft games and like Call of Duty. So, you know, you can see how you know, if you had a platform, those are, um, certainly customers you would want to have, but, um, you know, but in terms of, um, cause I, I know that there was a lot of complaints regards to the amount of, um, pre-advertising they were being offered. It was being, you know, I guess you could say being described as being tant- tantamount to, uh, bribery, which I don't know if I would agree with that because when you look at it from that standpoint, it's kind of like when you have, um, I don't know if you're, you know, kind of familiar with how it works with casinos at all in terms of like, if you have like high rollers versus, you know, regular customers, you know, I, I worked at a casino for a little bit. And I remember that you always give more comps and, you know, incentives to your bigger customers because it shows them appreciation. Right. So bringing on, you know, somebody like Activision Blizzard, that would make a lot of sense because obviously, you know you, they're going to bring in a lot of revenue, and you want to show them the appreciation for that. So you you help them out with some free free marketing, free advertising. So
0: yep that that makes sense. Now, um, Epic Games, you point out, was actually offered 147 million to make Fortnite available on the App Store. So why are they going after Google again, or why did why did they pursue this this legal action?
2: Well, you know because i know that they cited the reasons was they they also didn't like the platform the platform fees as well because in order to you know utilize the code to be able to publish your games on the google um play app, there is, there was at one point a 30% fee, but, um, I believe both Apple and Google reduced it to 15% once, uh, the first, uh, case went to court they both reduced it kind of to, I guess in a sense, it was a little bit more of like a tactful play to kind of just, you know, lessen the perception that they were kind of, um, gouging people. But, but when it comes right down to it though, um, what a lot of people don't realize, and this is more, I, I can't really speak because I didn't look so much into um, how it works with with Apple, but with Google, um, you actually have um, those fees actually cross subsidize smaller developers. So what ends up happening is that the majority of the free apps, they the developers don't have to pay that fifteen percent fee, uh, and what ends up happening is is that when you um, <clears throat> You know, if this, you know, what could what by, one byproduct of this case could be is that Google will now have to charge a fee to all developers. Which again, you see the anti that the irony is they're claiming that you know Google is being anti-competitive, but in actuality, it seems like uh, Epic might be trying to squash some competition from you know free developers, right? That they're, they're offering free games, free apps to take away from you know games like Fortnite. And what kind of, you know, makes me even a little more suspicious about their motives is the fact that they actually have their own um, platform, their own app for, for, um, for distributing games themselves. So, you know, it makes me wonder, are you trying to just stick it to a competitor right now? And because the competitor is a little larger than you, you're just trying to mark, you know, you know, you know, dress it up like it's, you know, you know, oh poor me, I'm trying to, you know, I'll fight the big guy. right?
0: Right? Now, you make, the, you make the case, though, in your article that, um, instead of monopolizing the market, Google Play actually increases competition in the gaming app and the App Store spheres. Help me understand how that works.
2: Right. So, so they, they help increase competition by allowing access to smaller developers that normally would not be able to publish their games through, uh, through the app through and that's kind of where those fees come into play right those fees that are charged to, to bigger developers like epic they they're they're passed down so that they're they're able to enable smaller developers who want to you know maybe some indie developers or maybe some you know some startups to get their apps onto the um, platform
0: okay so let's uh let's talk about um, if, if this uh, as you mentioned if it sounds like if epic has won their suit is this going to change the way that Google does business with Google play or is this only going to affect their situation as it relates to google play
2: well i think i think what 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 it's one of those couple of things that could happen i mean Google could just you know lie down and kind of just take because i mean this was in a district court in northern california so they very well could they might take it up to the supreme court i can't you know really tell you for sure what they're going to do but um you know hopefully i, I kind of hope they fight it because i don't think that especially when their case was so similar to, to that of apple i don't think they really should have lost that one
0: okay um Going to be interesting, but, I mean, maybe I'm going to have to get into video games so I can start getting my mind around some of the battles raging, you know, just out of view. Um, you you say that Epic, most likely, is not trying to correct an actual wrong here, but simply, you know, rent-seeking. Um, are they possibly playing this for the notoriety or the exposure such a case would give them?
2: You know, I I can't necessarily... Uh, You know, ascertain whether it's that or if they just want to reduce competition. But, um, but I mean, yeah, you know, it it does give you some notoriety, and you know, if you have a new game coming out or a new version of Fortnite, it definitely will give you some publicity for sure.
0: Is there a balance that could be struck between um, having the government involved in antitrust? Um, controversies like this versus uh, letting the market sort it out. I'm much more inclined to, to lean towards solutions that don't involve government, but um, maybe there are some cases where, where this kind of intervention is, is needed.
2: You know, I would certainly agree with you, Brian. I, I think I'm going to put on my black, more radical libertarian hat right now, and I think the government sh- should stay out of it. I think that, you know, most monopolies are maintained through government privilege rather than through market processes because at the end of the day anybody who has the right product could you know create a whole new you know um a whole new product market that could bring you know bring the previous market into obsolescence you know which
0: we're, we're up against the clock here, Peter. I'm so sorry, but thank you so much. Now, Peter Clark, again, Young Voices contributor. Where can people find you on social media?
2: You hey, find me at uh, blog underscore logic.
0: Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Hey, we're happy to welcome Elizabeth Grace Matthew back to the program. She is a Young Voices contributor. And um, Liz, you've been on here a number of times, but for folks who are meeting you for the first time, take a moment and tell us about yourself.
4: Sure, thank you so much. And thank you for having me back. Um, I am a writer. I'm a regular opinion contributor at The Hill. I'm also currently um, a visiting fellow with Independent Women's Forum, as well as Young Voices contributor. I write about books, culture, politics, religion, um, and I spent about a decade in higher education before moving to writing full time about a year and a half ago.
0: All right. And speaking of culture, I'm looking at one of your articles here on the rise of the anti-marriage right. And uh, you know, it it used to be, as you point out here, that most critics of the institution of marriage could be found on the left, but uh, the new critics on the right are taking in some cases an even harder stand. Talk to me a little bit about, uh, when when we talk about anti-marriage, what exactly are, are we, are they saying that the institution itself really shouldn't even exist?
4: So there's different perspectives on each of these sides, right and left broadly, of course, is a bit of an oversimplification. But historically speaking, many of the critiques of marriage came out of feminism, right? They were saying that women were treated as property, that marriage created more work for women, that it was a way of men having dominion over their wives, whether economically, sexually, otherwise. And of course, going even further back historically, marriage was often the only viable way that a woman could live a middle class or comfortable life, right? There was a time when women could not own, earn their own money. And so that sort of um, understanding of marriage undergirded a lot of the feminist zeitgeist of the 60s and later. And so that critique of marriage is alive and well on the left, despite the fact that liberals are increasingly likely and far more likely to be married, right? So that's sort of interesting irony there. On the right, the critique is a little bit different. It is less about what's good for women and more about, almost exclusively about, what's good for men. And so one of the things that has been um, discussed a lot on the sort of fringe of the online right, I wouldn't say this is the right broadly, I would say it's that sort of hyper online um, influencer fringe, is that the idea of a companion or an egalitarian marriage in which women and men are equal partners, in which women often have professions and um, do not remain at home as as housekeepers or stay-at-home mothers has disserved men and that sexual monogamy is unnatural to men and that men should not submit to the norms of the types of marriages that we now consider normative in a sort of um, post-1960s, really in some ways post-1860s, you know, world.
0: Wow. I You know, I've heard, and I don't know if this is any relation to the whole men going their own way movement, but that sounds kind of like they just, well, you know, marriage is, uh, the deck is stacked against me, so I'm just going to go my own way. You know, they're, they're going to be, you know, Involuntarily celibate or whatever for their lives. I've heard those kind of rumblings, but this sounds uh, this sounds a little bit different than than, than what I would have expected. Um, what what's uh, can I ask? Who are the voices that that have been promoting this, or where where did this originate?
4: Sure. So a lot of it is in exactly those online spaces you're talking about. There's a lot of that incel community that's you know been talking about things like this for a while. The two most current people who are putting a lot of this out there as influencers are Andrew Tate, right? The former, um, kickboxer who's got that sort of huge following among teenage and 20 something young men. And then Pearl Davis, who's an anti-feminist YouTuber who herself is of course a woman. And so kind of sidesteps some of the criticism that is directed at Tate by virtue of the fact that it's hard to say she's anti-women when she is a woman, um, you know and and these two are saying very similar things to what i just articulated about marriage being unnatural for men being um, too much of a benefit and to women and too little of one to men and in concert with that there is sort of what you brought up there this idea that the deck is stacked against men being able to get married in many cases louise perry's book the case against the sexual revolution which is in no way um, promoting an anti-marriage idea, it's promoting a pro-marriage idea. Um, she is a you know feminist who I'd say is you know, centrist or, or whatnot. But she talks a lot about how the deck is indeed stacked against men be in, in one sense, and women, frankly, but in the sense that we have a winner-take-all system in the sexual marketplace where the men who are successful have their pick of women, right? And men who are not, because women are able to make a life on their own now in a way that 75 years ago they weren't able to do, and so they would almost have to marry somebody. Now that they don't have to marry somebody, they're increasingly likely not to get married if getting married would mean marrying a man who is not their economic equal or educational Mm -hmm. equal. And so you're now in a situation where it is more difficult for working class men in particular, to attract life partners.
0: Interesting. Now, I I would say if somebody were to say, well, you know, once a guy does get married, and, and I've, I've seen this in a handful of cases, um, if a woman decides to divorce her husband, she can initiate the proceedings. And, you know, family courts sometimes to me, I think, take a pretty lopsided approach. The man is seen as a wallet, essentially. And, you know, it, it doesn't seem like he's treated nearly as sympathetically as as his wife or former wife and, and children are going to be treated. And, and maybe that's that's a necessary. Thing, but um, what you're talking about is swearing off marriage in the first place. Not, not to, you know, don't don't risk getting divorced and losing half of everything you own. It's more like it really has nothing to to offer you. Um, that what is that doing to marriage rates? Are we seeing those rates plummet?
4: Yeah, yeah. So I think it's both of those things. I think what you just brought up is enormously a piece of this. I mean, Pearl Davis does talk about that very directly. I think the good news and that, I mean, not a lot of good news, but the good news about that in particular is that I think there's been a lot of pushback to that recently. And a lot of people trying to come up, Richard Reeves is one person who comes to mind in terms of the boy crisis and writing a book about fatherhood that is not necessarily linked to marriage. um, His book of boys and men talks a lot about, we need to build a way to create fatherhood that is not necessarily dependent on the continuation of a marriage. And I think that's um, absolutely needed and there's there's grains of truth in some of this discourse where it comes from
0: you know marriage rates oh, oh go, go ahead. ahead no please continue i'm sorry
4: i was going to say marriage rates have been declining you know for a long time and it's impossible chicken or egg right how much of these influencers are just reflecting that and how much are they creating it but certainly there's an enormous amount of discontent out there with the modern ideals of marriage both fair and unfair discontent um, and this sort of what I would consider a, a grave, serious, and, and alarming overreaction um, on the part of this online fringe, you know, speaks to a lot of that.
0: One of the best defenses of marriage that I've ever heard was a, a Catholic, I believe, it was an arch archbishop, archbishop um, out of San Francisco, um, who who made the case. This was a few years ago about how he said, "Look, we we're, we're shifting the focus of marriage to the happiness of the adults." As opposed to the stability of a of a inst- an institution, which the children, the offspring that they create, um, can be raised. And I thought that was a really interesting take. Um, I would love to get your take on um, who has who has the most at stake here. Is it the men? Is it the women? Or is it the the children that you know are going to be that, that we're going to need to carry on the human race? Sure.
4: I mean, I think it's. In, in the end, it's always children, right? Who, who are reflective of what else is going on in their society and whose lives are shaped by that. I mean, there was a time when, of course, marriage was a predominantly economic institution. It was more stable, but less romantically fulfilling, right? Um, when we made marriage a romantic institution based on you know, feeling essentially rather than on economics, in some ways, we threw the baby out with the bathwater and made it less of a social institution, right? And so if you make it about the feelings of the two people involved, as opposed to about the greater good of the community, beginning with the children in that household, you're going to get high rates of divorce. Now, of course, divorce rates have been falling significantly, and they've largely been falling, though, because people are not getting married in the first place. So you can't get divorced if you never got married. Um, And, you know, one of the, the consequences of that is children being born to a lot of single mothers who who never live with their fathers? Now, if it's a question between is it better to have your family break up at a certain point or to begin life without your father in the home, I'm sure there's sophisticated statistics we could could figure out which is worse on average and for whom. But neither is good. I think it's I think that's that much is clear.
0: Yeah, the the last line in your article talks about uh, you know given the eagerness of of these people pushing this anti marriage uh, uh, point of view from the right. Um, they're, they're embracing an uncivilized state of nature, and, and I think civilization is what marriage really is good at, at helping to, to promote. Liz, we're, we're up against the clock here, but uh, for people who would like to follow your work, what's the best place for them to go to find you on social media or to find your articles?
4: Thank you so much for having me. I'm on Twitter at Elizabeth G. Matt, and all of my um, articles and website are linked to that.
0: Fantastic. Thank you so much. welcome back to moving forward with young voices this is our fourth and final segment and we are happy to welcome Neetu Arnold back to the show Uh, Neetu it's uh, good to talk to you again for those meeting you for the first time could you just take a moment and tell us about yourself
5: it's a pleasure to be here uh i'm a research fellow at the national association of scholars where i focus on higher education issues and that's actually why i had some fun writing this article uh really looking at the role education schools play uh in in these sort of race conscious programs you know i i wrote an article about how an illinois high school offered black and hispanic students Uh, the option to take racially segregated classes. And the idea was so that underperforming minority students would have, quote, an opportunity to get specialized instruction in core courses. And so, um, I and my article kind of takes it a step further where I look at how education schools are really um, shaping the ideas that would inform administrators and teachers to even you know, kind of adopt something that a lot of us might think is a little bit backwards, yeah.
0: the the headline really grabbed me. Is racial segregation coming back to America's schools? I was like, ooh, but it's it's a fair question because there are um, I mean, look, there are some schools that will hold separate graduations for black students versus other students. Talk to me about who was behind this idea. Um, i'm just I'm just curious uh, who was who who suggested this to these Chicago schools in the first place?
5: I mean, I'm not sure who specifically informed the Chicago schools to adopt this. pro. Well, actually, Evanston Township High School that uh, I don't know who exactly informed them to make that decision. But the idea was that uh, school administrators thought that this would help uh, uh, improve the uh, racial achievement gaps between black and Hispanic students versus Asian and white students. And the idea is that uh, I guess what uh, blacks and Hispanics learn differently and they don't really fit into white standards of excellence. I'm not even sure what white standard of excellence means, but they thought that by offering a segregated class or segregated classes that somehow this would um, help those students, and I find this quite misguided. Uh, I think we should be trying to help all students who are struggling, we should be trying to um, help them based on where they are, their their ability, their aptitude. And so I really look at how education schools, they, they've re- or actually, academia in general has really been behind this for a long time. Um, you know, and, uh, I think when we look at what they're teaching today, particularly in the education colleges, we see that, um, you know, they're really focusing on racial equity, you know, equal outcomes, not equal opportunity, but equal outcomes based on race. And just to give you a sense of what's going on, you know, Harvard has a, a course called Leading for Equity and Excellence, where future teachers and administrators will learn how they could commit Their systems, so their school systems, to racial equity. Mm. So that's just one example of how this is going from the teacher and administrators to students.
0: When I hear that kind of language, I immediately have to wonder: Am I? Is this just critical race theory, or part of critical theory? um, You know, from from a different angle, is this related to critical race theory, for instance?
5: Actually, yes, and uh, you know the kind of initiative that evanston township high school took it's part of a larger group of programs called affinity groups they per affinity groups purposefully uh, separate students based on a shared identity category like race sex sexual orientation uh what made evanston's um situation unique was that instead of applying to programs that are already voluntary based like uh, an extracurricular program or even graduation, like who who gets to sit where, mm-hmm. uh, in this case, it was based more on a core class. And so, academia has had a long history in engaging with these ideas. Uh, You'll often see followers of critical race theory um, subscribing to affinity groups. So, yeah, it's definitely connected to that.
0: Wow. Well, it seems like they're they're coming full circle. You know, we're, we're trying our hardest to solve problems of racial disparity and, you know, racism and attitudes. So how do we do that? Well, we separate into different groups that are based on race. Wait a minute. That seems like the problem they were trying to solve in the first place.
5: Well, yeah, and I think... The reason they go after race is because they view racial disparities as the problem. And so, well, how are you gonna fix racial disparities? You're going to fix it through more race-based policies. And again, I think that's completely misguided. Uh, I'd like to actually point you to how uh, we can actually address uh, the fact that there are underperforming students and we can help them. And I think the best way to do that is to separate students by ability. That's one way to do it, targeted instruction. Uh, I think a great example that we've seen in real life is how a rural Alabama school was able to increase their students' math scores during the pandemic. And just to place this in context, uh, so many schools across the country were seeing decreases in their reading and math scores, and yet somehow this rural Alabama school was able to do it because they they uh, they took their students' test scores, they they looked at the data, and they said and they used that information to determine how they're going to shape their instruction and how they're going to turn students' weaknesses into strengths this did not require any racial discrimination and they and they saw positive results so i think we should be seeing more of those kinds of strategies rather than uh, racially segregated classrooms.
0: That's really encouraging to hear about this school in or these uh, schools in Alabama. Um, my wife is a math teacher and, and what you're describing sounds a lot like how she and her colleagues try to uh, address the, those who are lagging behind. You know, I've never once heard her say, well, if we just, you know, could get the students that are this shade, you know, into this class, but it always comes down, it's their ability. Some, some students have the ability and don't need the extra help, others, you don't need to to have that that targeted instruction or tutoring to, to get them caught up or to get them to where they're they're competent in in those particular math skills. Are are there any other um, districts or locales throughout the country that that are likewise looking at this and, and maybe even considering it? Have you heard any rumblings of such?
5: Uh, are they considering what Alabama I, did I, or
0: what? I'm sorry, as as in uh, adopting this. Uh, this Illinois school-based approach where, you know, separating the students based based on race?
5: I haven't seen that quite yet. Uh, it's actually interesting because even those who are equity components or equity proponent, uh, they, they support equity initiatives. Um, they've actually said that uh, the sort of uh, racially segregated strategy may backfire. I saw this at uh, I think it was a racial equity center at the University of Southern California, and they were saying that actually schools should not be doing this. So I think it'll sure it'll be interesting to see how other schools view the media coverage, the the public. I, I think a lot of the public has not taken very kindly to the story. You know, you hear about racial segregation and you know, certain opportunities are there only for some students and not all. And the fact that this even happened at a public school is um, is quite shocking. So I I think what we will see are more race conscious initiatives, race conscious programs. But in terms of a a more racially segregated classrooms, I haven't seen anything other than what what we saw in Illinois so far.
0: We've got about a minute left, um, Nitu. Could I ask, when we say race conscious, can you give me an example of what race conscious policies or practices might look like? I'm trying to conjure up what that might mean and I'm drawing a blank.
5: Yeah, so I think uh, I'm I'm gonna take this to the affirmative action initiatives as an example, um, which has more to do with colleges and how they were, they were determining who they admitted into their universities based on race you know they might have programs or initiatives where they're very much targeting attention towards specific racial groups with the idea of quote helping them giving them more opportunities even though frankly i'm i'm not sure how that is allowed under the law given that um, you know we you, you still have to discriminate you still have to make those choices and I I don't think the law really makes a distinction between. Uh malicious discrimination and beneficial discrimination. So that's that's maybe one way to view it.
0: Yeah, that <laughs> I don't want to be the one in charge of having to determine <laughs> the, the difference between those. Again, we are talking with Neetu Arnold. Uh, she is a Young Voices contributor and Neetu for people who wish to uh, follow you on social media, what's the best place for them to find you?
5: You can follow me on X, not Twitter, X at N-E-E-T-U underscore Arnold.
0: Thank you so much. Great to visit with you again.
5: Thank you.